you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to Judges chapter 4. As we continue in the book of Judges tonight, we're in Judges chapter 4. The historian writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you ten thousand men, from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, with me I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaananim, which is near Kadesh. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and she covered him. He said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here? That you shall say, 
No. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple, and it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now the chapter before us shows us once again, in an odd way, the grace and kindness of God. After the death of Ehud, the Israelites had fallen into sin again. The Lord sold them into the hands of an enemy, this Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, which if you're looking at a map of Israel, this is up to the north in Israel, in the, uh, in the north, north of the Sea of Galilee, in the territory that was allotted to, to Naphtali. As you notice, there were references to the tribe of, of Naphtali and Zebulun in this account. This is, this is going to be up at the northern end of the nation and territory of Israel. Sisera had command of 900 iron chariots with which he is said to have oppressed the people. Now, we don't know the precise nature of the oppression, but you can imagine if you've got 900 chariots and angry soldiers, you can wreak havoc on a population of people. And the people suffered under the hand of Jabin and under the hand of his general Sisera. And to deliver them from such oppression, the Lord used what might appear to be unlikely instruments. Two women and a man, a general with some trepidation. The first of the three whom we meet is this woman, Deborah. Matthew Henry commented on this woman by saying, her name signifies a bee. And she answered her name by her industry, sagacity, and great usefulness to the public, her sweetness to her friends, and sharpness to her enemies. So this lady is a bee. We're told in verse 4 that she was a prophetess and that she functioned as a judge. Now, in that we're told she is a prophetess, I would understand here that referring to the gift of inspiration, that she spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as with the other prophets, delivering particular commands from God to the people and also foretelling future events by the Holy Spirit. And I think we see both of those things here in this passage. And so we see first her delivering the command of God to Barak in verses 6 and 7. And then we see that in the delivery of that message from the Lord, she does speak of future events. She prophesies what was going to happen, that the Lord would draw out Sisera and would give Sisera into Barak's hands. And we also have predictive prophecy again in verse 9, where Deborah tells Sisera that the Lord was going, excuse me, Deborah tells Barak that the Lord was going to sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. So this, this woman was a prophetess, and we see, uh, we see this in both Old and New Testaments. We can think of, of Huldah, who shows up in the times of Josiah in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. This was a woman who was inspired by the Holy Spirit and foretold future events, who spoke the word of God. You'll remember after the law was, was recovered in the days of Josiah that that when they, when they wanted to inquire of the Lord, 
they knew that she was a prophetess. And so they, uh, Josiah sent a delegation to Huldah to inquire of the word of the Lord. Likewise, Exodus 15.20 tells us that Miriam, the sister of Moses, was a prophetess. In the New Testament, Luke 2.36, Anna in the temple at our Lord's birth is called a prophetess. Uh, similarly, Acts 21.9 refers to the four daughters of Philip the Evangelist as prophetesses. And so these, I, I would understand these all in, the, all in the same vein, all having the gift of inspiration and speaking the Lord's word to his people at a particular time, as distinguished from preaching. When I'm preaching, I'm not prophesying in that sense. I'm opening a book, God's book, and I'm declaring his word to you. So that's, that's the distinction that I would see between, between preaching and prophesying. And in addition to being a prophetess, Deborah was also a judge. She rendered judgment for the sons of Israel who came up to her. John Gill expressed it this way. This meant that they went to her to have her advice and counsel in matters of difficulty and to have causes between contending parties heard and decided by her so that she might truly be reckoned among the judges. And so she was thus an inspired prophetess and also a civil judge among God's people. This is not what we would normally expect and not the usual pattern that we see in Scripture, but God sometimes uses unexpected instruments for his purposes. And the second of these unlikely instruments whom we meet in this chapter is Barak. This is the man summoned by Deborah, commanded by her by the word of the Lord to take 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun to Mount Tabor so as to meet Sisera in battle when the Lord drew Sisera out. The unlikeliness of Barak to be a deliverer shows up in verse 8, where he demands the presence of Deborah in order to obey the Lord's command. He said, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And in that response, we see both his faith and also his unbelief. It's a mixed bag. On the one hand, he trusted the word of God, which was spoken to him by Deborah, and he is also given honorable mention in the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11.32. We also see in that his great trust and great regard for, for Deborah, which is good to a point, but beyond that point, it becomes unhealthy. And so it was good for him to have a high regard for her and a great confidence in her as one who spoke the word of God. And as such, it was certainly fine for him to desire her presence and her help. But it was not good of him to make his obedience to the Lord's command conditional upon her and whether she would accompany him or not. And thus it seems that on account of his weakness in this and his, his unbelief, that he is deprived of the honor of capturing or killing Sisera himself. Rather, Sisera would be sold, we are told, into the hands of a woman. But still, the Lord uses Weak instruments. And as we said, Barak's faith is praised in Hebrews 11. And in this we see the kindness of God, that God is merciful to the weak who are having trouble with the resolve to obey. God still used him to bring about the deliverance of his people, not because the people deserved deliverance or because Barak was completely worthy to be a deliverer. God showed them mercy because he is merciful. It's not about them it's about him and his character. And he used Barak in such a way as is in keeping with what the Lord said to Paul when he said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected 
in weakness. I have a weak instrument here. But the Lord's power shined forth through him, and we see him put forward as an example of faith, even despite his weakness. And then, as we, as we read on through the chapter, verse 11 adds what at first might seem to be a very unconnected detail, but it's one that proves ultimately decisive for the events of this chapter. We have this man, Heber the Kenite, who separates himself from the rest of his people and moves up to Kadesh. Now, back in Judges chapter 1, verse 16, we saw that this people group, the Kenites, had settled in the south, in the territory of Judah. But Heber separates himself from them and moves up to the north. As one commentator said, it's like going from Florida to Vermont, only not quite that far. And so it's moving from the southern portion of your country up to, up to the north. And so who, who are these people? Who are these Kenites? Well, back in, uh, here, here in verse 11, we find uh, that the, the Kenites are from the, uh, the sons of, of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. Moses' father-in-law was a, was a Midianite, but his descendants lived among the Israelites. And so even though these, these people are not genealogically Israelites, nevertheless, they lived among the Israelites. And often when the Kenites show up in the Old Testament narrative, they show up as godly folks doing the right thing at some critical junctures. And so here in chapter 4, we have Jael. Centuries later, 2 Kings chapter 10, we read of Jehonadab, the son of Rechem, and how he collaborated with, uh, with Jehu, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel at that point, who was going to eradicate Baal worship. And uh, Jehu, uh, excuse me, Jehonadab accompanied this king Jehu when Jehu went into the house of Baal, setting a trap for the worshipers of Baal. And this uh, Jehonadab seems to be none other than Jonadab, the son of Rechab, referred to Jeremiah chapter 35. If you remember in Jeremiah 35, Jeremiah takes the Rechabites into the temple and sets wine before them and says, drink wine. And they say, no, we're not going to do that. Our forefather commanded us not to drink wine, not to, uh, not to build houses, not to plant vineyards, and a few other things. And they said, we're, we're not going to do that. And this was, this was to be an object lesson for the people of Judah. And the Lord said, you see, these people listen to their forefather, and they don't drink wine when they're told to. But you people, you people of Judah, you won't listen to me. And the point is, the Rechabites are an example of faithfulness to the shame of the people of Judah. And so these are, these are the Kenites. The Rechabites would be a subset of the Kenites. But nevertheless, the interesting group of people, and often when they show up in the Old Testament narrative, they are doing godly things. And so we have this man, Heber, moving from the south up to the north. And for whatever reason, we find in verse 17 that his house was at peace with Jabin, the king of Canaan. And that also proves very integral to the account. And we don't know the precise nature of the peace, whether it was just uh, that these people, uh, Heber and his wife Jael, were, were Kenites and therefore were a little bit more transient and uh, nomadic and that the king had decided, well, I'm going to I'm going to set my sights on the, on the Israelites and not, not bother these people uh, since they're not living in the land with an allotment the way the others are. We don't, we don't know precisely what the nature of this peace was, but suffice it to say there was, uh, there was some absence of conflict between Jabin and the house of Heber. And then in verses 12 through 16, we have the account of the battle. Deborah was right there with Barak, giving the word of the Lord to him just before the battle. And then verse 15 tells of how the Lord routed Sisera with the edge of the sword before Barak. 
This uh, attack of Barak and his soldiers seems to have been accompanied with a rainstorm as the song of Deborah, Deborah chapter 5 verse 4 and chapter 5 verse 21 seem to, to indicate that a rainstorm accompanied this attack. And one of the results of a rainstorm would have been that the advantage gained by Sisera's chariots in the battle would have been neutralized. Chariots are not going to do well in the mud. It was observed during the fighting that took place in Palestine in World War I that even 15 minutes of rain would wreak havoc on any cavalry operations that were uh, attempted. And so if there's there's a rainstorm, it's not going to go well for the operations of charioteers either. And so by the grace of God, the, the Canaanite army is decimated, but Sisera gets away on foot, and then we have Jael in verse 18. Jael went out to meet Sisera. She invited him into the tent, and there being peace between her husband's house and the king, he came in. Heber and Jael may have even interacted person to person with Sisera before. And so Jael welcomes him, speaks words of peace and safety to him, gives him a drink of milk to parch his thirst, covers him up to hide him, and then deals the death blow with a tent peg and a hammer. In some nomadic cultures, setting up Tents and driving tent stakes was the work that was performed by the women. And so it seems reasonable to suppose that she was well practiced in using a hammer and a tent peg, and she yielded it here with devastating success. And yet again, here in the book of Judges, we're confronted with an ethical conundrum. What what should we make of J.L.? She welcomed Sisera into her tent with words that implied that he would be safe, and then killed him in his sleep. One commentator, modern commentator, went so far as to say, her actions are not only deviant and violent, but socially revolutionary, challenging the prevailing views of female roles in general and the relationship of husband and wife in particular. This particular commentator felt that that maybe there was actually some kind of a peace treaty, not just an absence of conflict, but maybe actually some kind of an agreement between Heber and Jabin. That's That's a little bit more than is explicitly stated in the text. We don't know the precise nature of the peace that existed. But if there was some kind of official treaty between Heber and Jabin, and then his wife knocks off Jabin's general, whoa, what are you going to do with a wife like that? And even a a classical commentator like Matthew Poole, who believed that Ehud's actions back in chapter 3 were justified, felt that something shady was, was going on here, with JL. He asked the question this way What shall we judge of this fact of JL's? It is a difficult question and necessary to be determined because, on the one hand, there seems to be gross perfidiousness and a horrid violation of all laws of hospitality and friendship and of the peace which was established between Sisera and her, and on the other side, this fact of hers is applauded and commended in Deborah's song. And indeed it is. The closest that we get to an inspired verdict on the actions of J.L. comes in Judges chapter 5, verses 24 through 27, in the song which Deborah and Barak sang. Now to be completely fair, we're not told one way or the other whether Barak and Deborah 
were filled with the Holy Spirit when they sang the song of chapter 5. They may have been, but we're not told that they were any more than we are told, for example, that the maidens of Israel were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his tens of thousands, right? We're, we're not told that those, that those maidens of Israel were under the inspiration of the Spirit when they sang that, nor are we told explicitly, one way or the other, about Deborah and Barak in this point. But that point aside, from all we can tell, I would say this, that Deborah was a godly woman, Barak was a man of faith, they were well acquainted with this incident, much better than we They knew better than I know the nature of the peace that may or may not have existed between uh, between the house of of Heber and King Jabin. They they would have known that better than these incidental details that are told to us here in this chapter. And being well acquainted with the events, they give it a ringing endorsement, right? They say, most blessed of women is Jael the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed is she of women in the tent. They, they have no qualms with praising her action of killing Sisera. And what I would say for myself is, again, though we're not told that they spoke under the inspiration of the Spirit in their song in chapter 5, I am inclined to believe that their impression of Jael's action in killing Sisera was correct, that she was, in fact, a blessed woman because she killed Sisera. Now, that leaves aside the question of whether she intentionally deceived him when she welcomed Sisera into her tent. Some commentators uh, are open that maybe, maybe at first she had no thought of taking his life when she, when she welcomed him and then had the thought to do so afterwards. That, that leaves that aside, but... What I would say, again, is that I'm inclined to take Deborah and Barak's verdict on this. And more could be said on the question than I intend to say tonight. But for the time being, I think we would do well to remember the context here, that this is a holy war in the truest sense of the word, that God was delivering his people from a man who had oppressed them severely, made his people cry out to him as a result. And given Deborah's song concerning what she says uh, the, the words that she puts in the mouth of Sisera's mother in chapter 5, verse 30, this, this man, Sisera, may have either participated or at least may have been willing to help accommodate his men in the rape of young Israelite women. We, we don't know for sure, but this was not a nice man, to say the least. It was prophesied beforehand that he would fall into the hands of a woman, and that woman was pronounced most blessed by a godly prophetess on account of the killing. We might quibble over some of the ethical details of her welcoming Sisera into the tent, but the scripture seems, on the whole, to regard her action with favor. And if indeed that is so, we should regard it with favor as well. I think Matthew Henry correctly points to both the rightness and uniqueness of the situation in this way when he said, It was a divine warrant that justified her in the doing of it, And therefore, since no extraordinary commissions can now be pretended, it ought not in any case to be imitated. The laws of friendship and hospitality must be religiously observed, and we must abhor the thought of betraying any whom we have invited and encouraged to put a confidence in us. And as to this act of J.L., like that of Ehud in the chapter before, 
we have reason to think she was conscious of a divine impulse upon her spirit to do it as did abundantly satisfy herself and it ought therefore to satisfy us that it is done well. God's judgments are a great deep. And so, again, this is, this is a unique situation. As, uh, as Matthew Henry puts it, we have reason to think she had a divine warrant for doing this. It seems, again, that the whole tenor of Scripture seems to support her in her actions in doing this. doesn't necessarily mean she was completely sinless throughout, but on the whole, her actions are judged favorably. And I think, I'm inclined to think that we should do the same as well. And then verses 23 and 24 conclude the chapter for us. And verse 23 gets in particular to the heart of what has happened here. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. This chapter is all about the deliverance which God worked for his people. He used unlikely and weak instruments, but it was his work which was accomplished. This is a wonderful reminder of God's great strength and power. 900 iron chariots, as oppressive as they may be, are no match for the Lord. And we also see here God's mercy. His people had sold themselves to do evil, and the Lord had sold them into the hands of their enemies, but then he graciously and mightily redeemed them from their oppressors. And this is the same God who has mightily, graciously, and mercifully sent a Savior for us. His only begotten Son, who has come into the world to destroy the works of the devil and to liberate us from our sin and from the tyranny of Satan. All of that oppression is no match for the Lord. So we find in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And again, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So this is our great God. He's mighty, he's merciful, and powerful in the redemption that he grants. And so let's remember again the terrible oppression under which we suffered under sin and Satan. And let's praise God for the glorious salvation and victory that has been accomplished for us through Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would give us grace as sometimes we wrestle to to understand it and to understand your ways in which you have worked in the past. Lord, we pray that you would give us humble submission to all that you have taught us. And Lord, we praise you that you are a merciful God, that you could have sold us into the hands of our enemies and left us there. But yet you have redeemed the people for yourself. You sent Christ into the world to bear our punishment so that we might be saved. And Lord, we pray that you'd fill our hearts with gratitude and with thankfulness, and as a result, with obedience and zeal for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.